Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is R. Dallas Green. I'd like you to find in your Bibles, Acts chapter 1. We'll be just there in one moment. I want to thank you all for the energy you've put forth in interceding for your church. We've been in a month of intercession, and intercession will always require something of us, something of the heart, our prayers flowing for the heart. And I wanted to get back to you as we start, and if you don't like financial announcements, you can just cover your ears for a moment. But for the uh, past five months of the fiscal year, um, the attendance in our church has been up 11%, which we thank God for. It's been an amazing season. God is sending us many, many people. Um, so if you're part of that 11% that's coming last year, welcome. My name is R. <laughs> um, you aren't surprised when you have difficulty finding a parking space. You see us adding chairs. So it's wonderful to see the church in a growth pattern. Secondly, oh, one thing I want to say about that is <clears throat> I want you to put into your calendar, not in pencil, but in ink, I'm going to be there on Sunday morning, okay? Because there's always a lot of uh, things that would draw you away from here. There's always things that are kind of luring you away. But I found that those who commit and sort of like, I'm going to be there, God willing, on Sunday, there's a blessing involved with that. Really, there is. Secondly, contributions given to ministry in comparison to a year ago, are down 2.7%. Now, we're not in a crisis. We're not where we want to be. We adjust our ministry budgets accordingly. We try to pay our bills. We live within our means. But we really are here to advance the kingdom. And that means restrictions if we don't have full funding. So what we had hoped to receive and what we've received, there's about a 2.7 differential. This trend creates about a $60,000 current deficit relative to our budget. So I liken this to a snowstorm. You know, when a snowstorm comes, you dig out. We all dig out together. You know, here's a shovel. This is our opportunity as a church to dig out a little bit together. So here's how we can dig out together. The shortfall could be remedied by an increased giving of about $3.37 per person in attendance here on a Sunday morning. It's not a huge increase, but it's a little bump forward. And it would surely make um, our life easier if we bump forward. So enough for that. You can open your ears again. Back to the sermon. Okay. <laughs> Super Bowl Sunday. New England. New England. Not New England Patriots, but New England is still digging out of the snow that fell last week. You know, when we heard about the snow falling at a rate of about two to four inches a week, or two to four inches an hour, you know, snow falling at two to three feet. You know, Brenda's from New England. All it takes is a power outage to realize how much we all benefit from this invisible resource we call electricity. How many of you here are thankful for electricity? Yes. Electricity is power. It has power within it, but we can't see it. It's invisible. Without power, our houses would be dark, right? They'd be cold. So we all need power flowing through our houses in order for us to see, in order for us to be warm. Electricity is invisible, but it has visible effects. You see, when there's power outages in my neighborhood, which are pretty common, by the way, the, the question always asked is, when is the power coming back on? Maybe you ask the same question. Now, that's a huge question residentially. But it's also a huge question in hospitals, right? And many of you here work in hospitals when there's a, a power outage. That's why there's emergency generators in hospitals, that there would be power in that hospital. 
But the, the power that is deposited in us at the moment of our salvation, the power of the Holy Spirit, is an even greater power. Those who know the person of Jesus Christ come to know this powerful presence, the Spirit. So I'd like you to go to Acts chapter 1 now, and uh, we'll look together at the first few verses of Acts chapter 1, because Acts has been called Acts. It's been called the Acts of the Apostles. It's also been called the Acts of the Apostles done through the power of the Spirit. And so this week, I really would love for you to kind of read through the book of Acts and see the Spirit of God moving upon the church. So let's pick it up in Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, Theophilus means lover of God. His former book is referring to the Gospel of Luke. So what did Dr. Luke speak about in the Gospel of Luke? I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through, do you see it? Instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, right? The apostles were going to lay the foundation of the church. The the church was going to be given to the teachings of the apostles. So Jesus gave instructions in the Spirit to the apostles. And after his sufferings, they're referring to the cross, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, when he was with them those three years, he was with them every day. But as he appeared to them over those 40 days, he kind of appeared and then disappeared. He was getting, they were getting used to him being there and not being there. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Luke wrote about all that Jesus did and all that Jesus taught. That's why we as a church, because Jesus' primary emphasis to his 12 was upon discipleship. That's why we as a church have adopted as our vision statement that we exist to be disciples, who make disciples, who live and love like Jesus. What we are about, what we will be about, what we have been about is the formation of disciples. Now, one of the lessons that Jesus imparted to his disciples in the power of the Spirit is that prayer is the pathway to a life experience by God, empowered by God. We read about Jesus that very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the place where he was and he went off to a solitary place, a quiet place, and there he prayed. Just a side note, I'd love for you each to have a solitary place, a quiet place, a chair, a couch, a place where you can meet with God, where God can speak to you, where you can hear his voice, where you can unload your hearts to him. Jesus practiced the presence of God. Jesus was abiding in the love of the Father. Jesus was hearing the voice of God in the quietness and stillness of his mornings. And once he heard the Father's voice, the Spirit empowered him to obey. The disciples saw the power 
of Jesus' prayer life, how he would cry out, Abba, Father. The very same spirit that lived in Jesus lives in us, and we also cry out, Abba, Father. In that precious gospel, the gospel of Luke, after giving to his disciples the model prayer we know as the Lord's Prayer and talking to them about persevering in prayer, Jesus said these words. Let's look it up. Luke chapter 11 and verse 9. It's on the screen. So I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And everyone who knocks upon the door, the door will be opened unto them. The verbs here are, in the Greek, imperatival, meaning it is an imperative that calls for repeated action. It is as if God is calling upon us to call on him. One writer said it's as if God is begging us to pray. Why would God be begging us to pray? God has things he wants to give us that can only be released through prayer. It's like God will move heaven and earth when his people begin to pray. It's like mountains will begin to move when his people begin to pray. It's like the sick will be healed when his people begin to pray. It's like wisdom will be given when his people begin to ask him for wisdom. The sense of the verse is to ask and keep on asking. To seek and to keep on seeking. To knock and to keep on persevering, knocking in prayer, and the door will be opened unto us. So I ask myself the question, and maybe you've asked the same question, Why is it that I don't pray like this? I've come up with three different reasons. There's a longer list than this, but here's three of Pastor R's reasons for prayer. Of my life, I think the biggest struggle has been in the area of prayer. So here we go. First one is, I live and we live in a spirit of self-sufficiency, autonomy, independence. We have learned over the years to rely upon ourselves, not to rely upon God. Jesus relied on the Spirit. He relied upon his Father. I was reading an article not long ago about men and their driving. The average man drives 274 miles every year. They don't have to. Do you know why? The men don't know why, but I'm going to say why. The men don't ask for help. They don't ask for directions. It's the same with putting things together, isn't it? Some assembly required, right? We want to figure it out, right? We don't want to ask for directions. Now, I have some strengths, but I have an enormous weakness in that I have absolutely no sense of direction. If I come to an intersection and the choices go right or to left, and I think it's to right, it's actually a better chance for me to turn left and be on the right road. Unless I have Debbie with me, who has a perfect sense of direction and is never wrong with respect to which way to turn. Uh, I'm helped by mountains, by oceans, and familiarity. 
sometimes by sunsets and sunrises. But overall, I have no sense of direction. I absolutely, most of the time, have no idea where I am. That gives you a lot of comfort, doesn't it, when I'm speaking to you? (laughs) So I think it's true that we operate in some level of self-sufficiency. Ask yourself the question, what am I relying upon God for? Or am I really living in a sense of self-sufficiency, self-independence? We tend to have two responses to life's situations. One is that of resignation. It is what it is, and nothing can be done about that problem. Or the second is, I will fix it myself. I can fix that problem with my own self-sufficiency. Secondly, reasons why we don't pray and this is me now speaking, this is a prideful statement, okay? I think that begging is not okay. Begging is not okay. And prayer, to some degree, is begging God. A friend of mine lives in New York City, and he went to the grocery store on a Saturday, maybe picking up a few uh, items before the snow was going to come. His wife texted him and said, Honey, your daughter would like, her name is Cars. She would like to have some vanilla ice cream. So the man went to the grocery store, picked up the groceries, took the vanilla ice cream, and came back to his house. When he went through the front door, there was Karis. And she said, Daddy, did you bring me ice cream? He said, Yes, I did. Let's put it in the freezer. When we have our nice dinner, we'll have ice cream for our dessert. So he put the ice cream in the freezer. So they sat down and had dinner together, and Karis noticed, well, she kind of tore through her food, and she was done. She said, Daddy, can I have ice cream? And he said, yes, honey, we can have ice cream, but not now. Your mother and I aren't finished. Let us finish our meal first, and then we'll have some ice cream. So she noticed the very last bite he took, and she said, Daddy, can I have ice cream? He said, no, honey, first I need to take my plate to the sink and wash off my plate, and then we can have ice cream. And we turned around, there was Karis six years old, looking at him and saying, Daddy, can I have ice cream? Now we hear that and we go, that sounds a lot like begging, right? Like persistence, perseverance. But that's a lot like what prayer is supposed to be, you see. Prayer is to ask and to keep on asking. Prayer is to seek and to keep on seeking. Prayer is to knock and to keep on knocking. You see, what Karis is modeling for us is a life before the Father, of asking of him like a child. And the third reason we don't pray is you and I have prayed about stuff before, and it doesn't happen, right? Has that ever happened to you? You've prayed about stuff, and it doesn't happen? We get cynical, and we begin to live in unbelief. Perhaps the greatest obstacle to my prayer life is my own cynicism and my own unbelief. Another friend of mine, he's a pastor friend, he was playing with some football with some friends of his around Thanksgiving. Some of his friends are believers. Some of his friends are not believers. So they asked him to pray, you know, with the football jerseys on, to pray before the football game. So they kind of, as guys do, you know, they got in a huddle, you know, and prayed with one another. Today we'll see in the Super Bowl, guys kneeling to pray. But they wrapped their arms around each other. And since there were unbelievers in the room, he said, Lord, thank you for your grace that forgives us for all of our sins. 
And God, thank you for your mercy for my brothers here because you're a merciful God and you're willing to uh, let their past go. And then his last prayer was, and Heavenly Father, I pray for your protection, that you might protect these guys as we play this football game. On the very first play of that pickup football game, the quarterback threw a rocket, and my friend tried to catch it, and it hit him in the thumb, and it sprained his thumb. He ended up going to a hospital in New York City. Now, he had just prayed for protection, and he had a sprained thumb in the football game. So one of the reasons why we don't pray is we started getting cynical about it. We start not really believing that God is hearing our prayers. True, yes? No one struggles like I do in this. Okay. So we create this long list of reasons why we shouldn't pray. Reason number one, I don't feel I'm any good at it, right? Like, other people are so much better prayers than I'm a prayer. Let them pray, right? Or people get all hot and sweaty when they start praying. I don't want to get all hot and sweaty when I start praying. I get bored. My mind begins to drift off. Or God doesn't, I don't really want to bother God with small requests. I don't really think my prayers make much of a difference. I've tried this before and nothing seemed to happen. I want to say something to you. Because there's a little bit of a cynic in all of us. God is moved by your prayers. Honest, direct, simple prayers. The prayer of a child to his father. Remember how your identity shifted? You've now been adopted. You're his child, a spirit of adoption. God loves to hear his prayers. When you pray and God specifically answers your prayer, you will never be the same. So you need to learn how to pray. Pray what is ever on your mind. Sometimes I pray, Lord, how do you want me to pray? I don't know how to pray in this situation. Spirit, guide me, right? Illumine my mind. You know, if your car is wearing out, and you're thinking about replacing your older car, pray to God for wisdom. If your marriage is in bad shape, ask God to help you. Ask God to help you to love each other and forgive each other. If you're dealing with a boss who's driving you crazy, talk to God about it, right? God wants this conversation with you. Prayer is simple communication with God, being honest to God. So Jesus now, in this text, is going to invite his disciples into prayer. Look with me at verse 4. On one occasion, when Jesus was with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised you, what you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the difficult interpretive questions we come to, and it is the big hermeneutical question, of how we interpret Scripture. I think the big question in the book of Acts is, is this book prescriptive or is this book descriptive? Does it tell what happened historically, descriptively, or is it telling us what will always happen prescriptively, 
if you follow. I can tell you right now my bottom line of this book, and I'll try to explain this in a moment, is that it both has descriptive parts and prescriptive parts. That everybody who gets saved receives a second baptism of the Spirit accompanied by the speaking in tongues, unknown languages, would be to interpret this book prescriptively. That is to say that when Pentecost happened, the birth of the church, the inauguration of the church, that what's happening ever since is another Pentecost. So what we're really praying for is the second baptism of the Spirit, the expression of tongues. The tongues that were spoken here were spoken as a sign to the Jews. They had come from various nations. They did not understand Hebrew Aramaic. So the language that was spoken unto them was their own language that they could understand. Now, I can tell you that the book of Acts cannot be interpreted purely prescriptively because in this first chapter, which we're reading, they had lost an apostle. His name was Judas. Judas went out and hung himself, and they were looking for a second apostle. And the way they chose the next apostle was they cast lots. So we know that the book is not purely prescriptive, but these are questions that we need to wrestle with, right? We need to settle on a position best we understand, but stay open on this because good people will definitely disagree. So let's look at the text together with that word on verse 4. While he was eating with them. Notice the relational environment they are in. The disciples and Jesus were breaking bread. And notice the intentionality of Jesus, that Jesus gave them this command. Now, Jesus was appearing, showing himself to his disciples, offering many convincing proofs he was alive, speaking about the kingdom of God. Now he gives a very specific command to them, don't leave Jerusalem. I want you to learn to wait upon God. The enduring principle here is that we are to learn to wait upon God and his timing. I want you to remember what I told you in the upper room. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you, he's saying, in the person of the Holy Spirit. I want you to stay here in Jerusalem, waiting upon God to receive the gift I promised you in the upper room. I have things for you to do here in Jerusalem. I'm about to turn the city upside down. I'm going to send some fresh wind to breathe life into the church. I'm going to send some fresh fire to breathe a blaze into the church. I'm about to send my spirit. But he's teaching his disciples how to wait upon God. The psalmist says it this way. I'm convinced of this. I'm confident of this. I will live in the land of the living. So wait upon the Lord. Be strong and take courage and wait upon the Lord. Some of you here are in the hardest room there is to sit in the entire building. You are 
in the waiting room, waiting to have a child, waiting to hear from your child, waiting to have an interview, waiting to hear back from an interview. And I can tell you and assure you that I have many times in my life been in the waiting room. I have been with countless people in the waiting room, waiting to hear some good news, waiting to hear any news at all. And when I am waiting, of this I am sure that I am not in control, that my God is in full control, but I am waiting and waiting and waiting. Jesus was saying to them, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't be tempted to go home. They weren't from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where Jesus was crucified. But God was about to visit that city. So be willing to wait for the promise. You see, the problem with waiting is, and when your mind is not filled with hope, it can lead us into despair and hopelessness. Jesus is telling the disciples, Do not leave Jerusalem. Do not leave the city. Stay where you are. I want you to wait confidently and wait expectantly. Now, therein lies the difference between simply waiting and sinking into despair and waiting confidently, waiting expectantly that my God is up to something, that my God is working out his plans, that my God is achieving his purposes, that my God has reasons for me to wait. There's something, though, that will happen inside of you while you are waiting. There's a work of the Holy Spirit inside of us while we wait. My wife, Debbie, in the year 1991, suffered a torn tibialis tendon in a head-on car collision. At that time, there was no reconstructive surgery, but Debbie was hobbled unable to walk in severe physical pain from that injury and other injuries. Debbie had to wait. Now, we prayed for healing, but Debbie had to wait. I had to wait. We prayed for guidance. We prayed for God's leading, but we had to wait. We prayed for relief, but instead she had tremendous pain as we waited and we waited and we waited. About 20 years after that incident happened, there began welling up inside of me a sense of hope. I can only explain it to you as a prompting of the Holy Spirit. When we sat in the office of a surgeon whose name was Stuart Miller over at Union Memorial Hospital, he said, I've been working on this procedure now for many, many years. And about two years ago, I found a way to do a reconstructive surgery, transplanting a tendon in the foot into that place where that torn tendon should be. And after 20 years of waiting and wondering and questioning and doubting, Debbie had this amazing reconstructive surgery and got the use back of her ankle and her foot. What I'm telling you is, There may be in your lifetime seasons of waiting, and they are difficult seasons. 
but to wait with confidence, to wait with expectancy. God, I know you're up to something. I know there's something good you have for me while I'm waiting. Help me to trust you and to rest in you and to wait upon you with confidence and expectancy. So yesterday was a, we- was a wedding. Sarah Raymond became Sarah Trammell. Yay, that's good news. <laughs> so uh, Sarah, as many of you know, Sarah, the daughter of Dan and Karen Raymond, she is a, a dentist. Um, and so there's a fellow whose name is Mike. Mike Trammell is a pastor, lives out of Mount Airy. And so Mike went to see Sarah and um, became convinced she was a good dentist. But while he was sitting in her chair, he became convinced that he was sitting in the presence of his son's future wife. I think the Spirit of God began to speak to him about Sarah being his son's wife. Now, his son lived down in Tennessee. So he invites his son to move back up. And when his son needs some dental help, he said, son, you need to go see Dr. Raymond, also known as Sarah, also known as Doc. So he sat in the chair and began having similar feelings for her. The only problem was that he didn't know it was ethical to date your dentist. Now, professionally, she can't ask him out, but he can ask her out. So what he learned was that Sarah had moved downtown to Frederick, and in Frederick, he went to Baker Park to wait for her, you know, waiting upon the Lord, waiting to see Sarah, but she never walked by. So he Googled this question, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited. Now, Sarah is, you know, 35 years old when she gets married. This guy's in his young 30s. They had been waiting and waiting and waiting upon the Lord. So one day, it was a Saturday afternoon, he went in for a dentist appointment, and uh, she, she, he was her last patient. The mother, Karen, could stand it no longer. So she called him up and said, if you ever wanted to call my daughter, she is on emergency call today, you can call and just say it's a personal thing. So Karen... <laughs> Says this young guy, call my daughter. He called her, and they went to the Greek festival together. And then what happened was, she said, I have a confession to make. That person who called you, that's my mother. You see, what had happened was, these two had waited and waited and waited upon the Lord. And in God's time, he brought the two together. You see, what Jesus was teaching his disciples here, this principle is to wait, to wait, to not to leave, but to wait for the promise my Father will give you. Now, everybody knew, right, that when the Spirit came, he would bring the baptism. He said, well, John baptized with water. In a few days, you will be baptized with the Spirit. What was he talking about? The baptism we know of water is a picture of what the Spirit does. The Spirit immerses us into the body of Christ. We become identified with the Spirit. Jesus said it this way, that if any man thirsts, let him ask of me. Let him come to me to drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. By this he meant the Spirit that those who believe would receive. You see, when the Spirit baptizes us, 
there now becomes this ongoing presence of God inside of us, the baptism of the Spirit. What he's saying is that when the Spirit comes, the equation is going to be completely changed. You're going to be identified with and immersed in the Spirit. The Spirit's going to begin to control your life. One person said it's like this. The normal Christian life is like this. We walk with the Father, and we feel safe and secure as the children of God walking with our Father. But there are times in life when we're walking with the Father, and the Father swoops us up in His arms, and He begins to kiss us on the neck, and telling us how much He loves us, and we feel the great affection of God, that God is near to us, that God is intimate to us, and we say, what an amazing God we have. What a great God we have, that nearness and closeness and intimacy with God. You see, what he's describing here is the presence of the Spirit in the life of the believer. So the disciples asked this question. They said, Lord, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He was talking here about the coming of his kingdom. Now, the Greek word for kingdom is basileia, meaning rule or authority. They had known that the prophets predicted that at some point the king would come and establish his kingdom. What an amazing king we have. You know, most kings send their, ba- their armies off to battle. But our king went to battle for us, laying down his life for us, paying the de- debt we deserved to pay. So Jesus is talking here about the coming of the kingdom, the manifestation of the kingdom. The kingdom. You know, I don't have a very large kingdom, but I do have a small kingdom. When a person enters my house, into my kingdom, with a cigarette, I will ask them to take it outside. First of all, I don't have any ashtrays. Secondly, we're all pretty sensitive to smoke. And third, I don't like it. When my kids started to drive, I'd say, you know, where are you going? I'd say, what are you doing? Uh, Who are you going to do it with? And they'd answer something like, I'll see you in a little while, Dad. And I said, let me explain to you some kingdom theology. I want to know because I am your father, right? And this is my kingdom. You see, in God's kingdom, he gets to rule in his kingdom. He gets to set the times when things happen. So they're asking the question, is this now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times the Father's fixed by his own authority. But here's a promise I'm going to make you, verse number 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. They knew something about the Holy Spirit coming upon people like Moses and then upon his elders. They knew about the Holy Spirit coming upon people like Gideon and people like David, the king who fought the battles. You see, they knew about the Spirit coming upon people. And so when he says here, I'll make you a promise. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. 
And when you receive him, you're going to receive power. You're going to receive a dynamic power you've never known before, the power of the Holy Spirit. You say, how powerful is the power of the Holy Spirit? And you will be my witnesses in your own Jerusalem, your own Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost places of the world. You see, he's describing something that's going to happen there, but he's prescribing God's plan, if you will, that will happen for the generations after these disciples. The place where we live, the place where we work, the place where we play, our hometown, that is our own Jerusalem. You are living in your own Jerusalem, you see. Wherever you live, that is your Jerusalem. And God gives us the power in our own Jerusalem to be a witness. Today, you'll probably be watching the Super Bowl. There's a quarterback whose name is Russell Wilson. He plays for the Seattle Seahawks. He's a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. If he's interviewed, he'll probably give bear a witness to his faith in Jesus Christ. We ought to be praying for him in terms of his ability to testify about Jesus. You'll see players that kneel there in the field giving thanks to God. You saw that of the Seattle Seahawks when that amazing game against Green Bay Packers, and they won. They gave thanks to God for that amazing comeback. You see, not only Russell Wilson is called to be a witness, but all of us are called to be a witness, to bear witness in our own Jerusalem, in our own region, our own Judea, reaching across cultures over to Samaria and then to the uttermost places of the earth. We heard about Haiti. There's a place I'll take you to in Haiti that the road stops. You can't go any farther. You've come to the end of the road, and that's where we're going to stop. You see, God has called his church to be empowered by his spirit to bear witness as to what God has said, as to what God has done, as to the change that's been wrought in our life. When a person is filled to the fullness of God, they are so full they cannot contain themselves. They begin to spill out. Praise from their lips begins to announce the goodness of God. Testimony from their lips about the freedoms they have in God. This is what Jesus meant when he said, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. You will bear testimony to the life of God. Now, this was not only to the first generation Christians. This was meant for all of us to be empowered by God's Spirit to bear witness. You see, when we begin to encounter and experience the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to see life very differently. It's really not about anymore what you do, your work. It's about the attitude you do your work with. It's about the people you do your work with. Your witness may be the quality of the work that you do. Your witness may be the attitude with which you do your work. You say, Pastor R, there's nobody at my work that works with a good attitude. That's why God puts you there. 
When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power and you will be my witnesses in your own Jerusalem, in your own hometown, crossing over cultures to the ends of the world. When the Holy Spirit came upon these people, he empowered them to be bold and courageous. Now, you could be facing this huge mountain in your life. It doesn't seem as if you're ever going to cross over this mountain. The mountain is too high, too far, and you feel too weak. You could be crippled with shame. Shame has come into your life, and you're very ashamed of what you have done or has been done to you. Nobody knows your most shameful secret. So you hide yourself in the darkness, and you feel as if the shame disqualifies you from lifting up your head. You might be crippled with oppressive anger. Somebody has been attacking you, assailing you. They attack your character, your personhood. Most of what they say is not true. And if they knew you better, they wouldn't be saying what they're saying. But it's eating you away on the inside. You're crippled with oppressive anger. Some of you here may be crippled with hopelessness. The prospects on the horizon aren't that great. You've suffered a loss, and you never expect to regain. You never expect to get over it. Right now, you're just trying to get through it. What the Holy Spirit wants to do is he wants to come and empower you to conquer the fear that is in your life. So pray with me. Father, here we are in your presence. It's a beautiful place. It's a safe place. Your throne room is a place we receive grace and mercy in our times of need. You're a God who came and showed us power of a life lived in the power of the Spirit. And Father, that power is so untapped in our lives, so needs to be released into our lives. Father, in this hour, we just open ourselves to the Holy Spirit's ministry, to speak into our hearts that which needs to be spoken, to feel that which needs to be felt, the intimacy and closeness, God, of you to us. That you're a God who's not far away. That you're a God who is near. That you're living inside of us. And you want to awaken whatever has been buried deep inside. So today, in Jesus' name, I pray that whatever has been binding us may be broken in the name of Jesus. I pray whatever stronghold there is might be broken in the name of Jesus that Jesus' name might not only be lifted up and praised and exalted, but Jesus' name may be called upon by us to help us in our times of need. Father, you promised that when you sent your Spirit, we would receive power and we would be your witnesses. God, as you free us, give us a word to speak, a word of testimony. God, meet us as we pray and as we worship. We ask in Jesus' name.